This episode of Truth's Table is brought to you by our NAACP Image Award-nominated book, Truth's Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation. Get it where all books are sold. Sisters, how y'all feel? Brothers, y'all all right? If this is your first time at Truth's Table, welcome to the table. And if you've been sitting at the table with us all these years, we are so grateful that you have been listening to us through these years, and we are inviting you to partner with us and support our work at patreon.com slash truthstable. Now pull up a chair and have a seat at the table with us. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, uh, well, usually how we start off our show is, welcome to Truth's Table, Midwives of Culture for Grace and Truth. I'm Akemini. And I'm Christina. This table is built by Black women for Black women. So welcome to the table, y'all. How y'all doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. Thank you. Yeah, definitely great to be here. Thank you. Yes, yes. We are honored, first of all. Let me get the title of this event right, because this is extensive, this title. <laughs> okay. It is Air Equity Initiative, Working at the Intersections Symposium, Pathways to Peace, Reimagining the Future of Public Safety for Youth and Communities. And we are at the National Museum of African American Music in Nashville. I'm excited <laughs> to be here in conversation with you all. Yeah, yeah. So I, I've, I've got your, your textbook definitions of who you are, but I, <laughs> I would rather have you tell us who you are in your own words. But let me introduce you to the listeners who will be dialing in for this today. Uh, we have Dr. Rashawn Ray, who serves mm-hmm. as the Vice President and Executive Director for the AIR Equity Initiative at the American Institutes for Research. Shout out to all the researchers in the room. Right. I'm a psychologist by training. This is the world we live in. And I'm really grateful to also introduce uh, Aloe Black uh, yes. to, the, to the room today, especially yes. as we're sitting in this historic museum yes. that highlights African-American music. You are a Grammy-nominated musician. We're going to claim Grammy winning one day real soon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, philanthropist and advocate and uh, the esteemed moderator of this event. So, mm-hmm. but, but I want you to introduce yourself in your own way. And why is this day important to you? Look, I mean, for, for me, I'm originally from right down the road, Murfreesboro, Tennessee, which is just a stone's throw away. And so for me, coming to Nashville is really, really significant and important because I think Nashville is a place that is, what we call community ready has a series of assets that need to be built upon, but also in North Nashville, where we're going to be for the event um, at Meharry Medical College. It's also a place that is plagued with historical uh, structural inequalities where a highway ran through a thriving black community and destroyed it. And then we fast forward to today, that zip code 37208 has the highest incarceration rate of black males in the country. Those two things are not disjointed. They are highly connected. So a lot of things have happened in between that and even since then, and we're here to have a conversation about pathways to peace, which is not only about stopping violence, but also about ensuring that people can thrive and do the things that they need to do to be successful. Right, and you know, as a singer and a songwriter, um, I found as a youth that music was my, was my pathway to peace. You know, a lot of the friends that I have um, say that music saved their lives. Mm-hmm. And and so getting involved in community action, act, being an activist um, and engaging in the, the conversations around s- public safety, um, police relations, mm-hmm. it's, it's certainly related to the music and also the kind of outsized influence I have with the, the megaphone that I have now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's why I also engage. Mm-hmm. 
you know, um, Alo, I'm curious about uh, if there was a particular point in your life that that uh, or a moment uh, or encounter, you know, with with police or um, or yeah, just a moment that that led to your commitment, your passion around uh, public safety and police reform. Was there a particular moment that you can pinpoint that that caused you to say this is the cause I'm going to take up? Um, and advocate for on behalf of my people. Yeah, I think there there are dapples of moments in the genealogy of my right. uh, <laughs> enlightenment. But um, I would say that you know I was ten years old, and a police officer comes to my door, and I I'm a, I'm one of the only black people in the neighborhood because my parents are from Panama. Mm. They moved us uh, near the military base. My dad was a marine. But they moved us into a neighborhood near the military base, and it was an all-white neighborhood. Police officers at my door telling me I stole somebody's bike because a a little four-year-old said they saw a black person take it, and I'm the only black person in the neighborhood. That's the first encounter, and you know I didn't really understand 50 miles away what NWA was saying. Right. Uh, with in terms of ex- my own personal experience, but I started to sense it from that one encounter. Mm-hmm. As I got older, of course, um, seeing the the, uh, the television news and watching Rodney King get pummeled by racist cops in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. another another uh, moment that yeah. that enlightened me, activated me really. Mm-hmm. But then, as an artist. It was an opportunity for me to um, to meet this organization called Community Coalition of South LA, Coco South LA, uh, founded by Karen Bass, the current mayor of Los Angeles. And I was invited in because they called me when they saw my billboards up in the neighborhood. And my billboards were up because I had taken advantage of an opportunity with, you know, a liquor brand to do some, mm. some uh, endorsement. But they called me and said, we're trying to shut down liquor stores in the neighborhood and you're not helping. You need to come down here so we can have a talk. And when we sat down and had that talk, they explained to me a lot of the different issues that were going on. And one in particular was this ordinance by the L.A. school district um, called Willful Defiance, where they were basically suspending and expelling students for wearing their hat backwards, tapping their pencil on the desk you know, maybe rolling their eyes at a teacher and the teacher had full authority and uh, executive power to say, yep, you're going to the office suspended. You can't come back to school. And we know what happens when kids are left to the, to the street and they're not in the insulation um, and security of a school. And so this is when they explained to me the school to prison pipeline. And that began for me an opportunity to use my my microphone and my visibility to speak about that i did a music video as a sort of a psa about this terrible ordinance and then the kind of trajectory that a a student might might be on in that pipeline to to prison if the the ordinance continued incredibly helpful I, i I want to talk a little bit as well to to Dr. Ray about you. You mentioned you didn't name it by name, but that's Bordeaux, the community that you're talking about in North Nashville. 
And I, I have some proximity to it as a person who helped to plant a church in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. It's one of the oldest neighborhoods in Nashville, Tennessee. And you're right when you talk about the ways in which it is an over-policed community and the way that it has devastated children and families uh, in, in that precious historic African-American community at the same time. Um, I want you to talk about as a researcher, as a person who leads the organization that you're a part of, how do you bring to bear the best of research to address these social ills that are not just generations old, they are hundreds of years old in the United States? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. So having the ability to help lead the AIR equity initiative, it's an over $100 million investment to address systemic racism in local communities by addressing segregation by race and place. That is a deliberate type of uh, agenda that we have. Part of what that means is to lift up local communities, not just look at the inequalities that exist, but to raise up the assets like you described. So, I mean, if we look at North Nashville, it's part of the reason why we're going to Meharry. I mean, you got Tennessee State, you got Fisk. I mean, these places are thriving. They have produced some of the best people to walk the planet, whether it, whether it is performing an operation or whether it is doing something like helping to transform our country on social issues and the like. So part of it is raising up these assets, and it's also relying on community organizations to tell us what they need, which is oftentimes something that doesn't happen. Oftentimes we go in and we try to tell people what they need based on a current system and a current agenda. So the AIR Equity Initiative focuses on four primary um, areas. First, we focus on education equity, workforce development, um, health and well-being, and what we're here for today is talking about public safety, justice, and policing, and aiming to address those particular issues. So what we do is we fund organizations that are underserved, that have innovative ideas, and as a researcher, I can tell you all, <laughs> first getting grant money is difficult. Getting money for innovative stuff is even more difficult. Getting money for stuff on race and racism is even more difficult after that. So you have this trifecta against you from the beginning. And the American Institutes for Research decided to make an investment in using evidence to forge ahead as in regards to equity. So the evidence leads. You lead with the research. The research will guide you on what some of the best practices, the principles are, what are some of the potential solutions. And then partnering and working with elected officials, local organizations, celebrities and famous people and entertainers to raise awareness and actually say these are the best practices and what the evidence is saying we should do to address, in this case, thinking about the harms and the ills of police violence and gun violence. That is really great. And I love that that they seek, AIR actually seeks to fund, you know, the initiatives from the people because <laughs> they are the experts on their experience and they know and they have the innovative solutions don't oftentimes have the, the resources, right? And so I think it's, it's really encouraging and inspiring to know that AIR exists, you know, in order to do that. Um, thank you for that. Uh, you know, uh, Allo, you, you did mention uh, that you're the son of uh, Panamanian uh, immigrants. I myself am second gen Nigerian American. And I'm curious, um, you know, with the changing de- de- uh, demographics of the black uh, community, which is also reflected here, you know, in Nashville. Uh, I'm curious about how uh, your own socialization, you know, as uh, a first gen or second gen, however, some sociologists say first and second <laughs> gen, uh, uh, son of Pan- Panamanian immigrants, how that uh, just in- impacted your um, racial consciousness, one, 
And how um, does your social location impact uh, and inform the music and the topics you decide to write on? Yeah, that's really interesting that I, as I was growing up, there was definitely uh, a, a marked difference between my blackness and the blackness of other uh, African Americans whose parents were generations in the United States. There's a different, um, I think, understanding and mentality that is is worth lots of conversation between between uh, within our within our black communities um, just to 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 get deeper about it. But um, you know, my I grew up knowing and understanding that we were different. My parents speak Spanish fluently, mm-hmm. um, but that when I walked out in the street, nobody would know what the difference is, mm-hmm. and that um, ultimately, even though I'm Afro Latino mm-hmm. in America, I'm just black first, mm-hmm. and so, um, and that and that carries with it a certain uh, a certain weight, um, and that there's also a different understanding about a, what is available my parents came to america looking at america as an opportunity with with uh eyes open wide at what was possible where some of my friends again whose whose parents are from generations of families here in the united states don't have that possibility in the in the language in the in the culture of their family they don't have that eyes open wide I can go somewhere to achieve something. And so I was raised with the, we're here to achieve. Um, so I had, that was always, you know, part of my, my understanding. So the, there wasn't, um, I don't know, the, the concept of, of um, the, the hindrance of being black, although it was present. It's always buzzing. It's always there. My parents moved to America because there was a civil rights movement here. There was no civil rights movement in Panama. So when you're black anywhere in the Americas, you're dealing with racism, right? But they, at least they had uh, that sense of, oh, okay, there's something I can achieve there more than I can do here. Thanks for uh, leading us through some of your own socialization work. And you're right, it is an entire show topic <laughs> to talk about. <laughs> Uh, the, the African diaspora and the way that it has shaped us and our consciousness around issues of justice yes. and identity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm really excited about the fact that we can actually have a little teaspoon of a pan-African conversation mm-hmm. about yeah. equity and justice for all people. Yeah. Uh, that's mm-hmm. a really wonderful thing. Uh, so, Dr. Ray, I, I uh, have a little bit of experience around in the nonprofit world, the fundraising, the philanthropy, grant world. Mm-hmm. And there is an expression which is uh, much pay, much say. Mm-hmm. So, so how do we, um, how do we utilize or get the resources that we need to do the projects that are important, but also don't end up puppeteered or controlled by organizations that don't really understand equity and justice and may in some ways be using resources to kind of pacify their conscience and not doing real justice work. In other words, how do you maintain integrity as we work with partners who might have the pockets, but may not have the con- the racial consciousness? Yeah, look, I mean, in the philanthropy space, we see this all the time, uh, a form of co-opting of people's ideas of the work that they put into. And at the AIR Equity Initiative, we're different in the sense that we allow the communities to lead. 
The other thing we do is we rely on our colleagues at the American Institutes for Research and provide what we call technical assistance, strategic guidance for organizations. So not only will we fund the organizations and I can get into all the details, you know, some of the other roles I've, I've been in as a professor at the University of Maryland and a fellow at Brookings where I think about funding and indirect costs and all of these things that really matter and what it means to keep the lights on and keep the water running and all this stuff. It matters, but oftentimes grassroots organizations in the communities that we're talking about have came about because of their own plight. As Alo was saying, they haven't had an equitable opportunity to dream. What does it mean to give them the opportunities to have those possibilities? So they're coming from like literally roses out of the concrete and we want to help them bloom, which is different from just trying to take that rose and plant it somewhere else. We want it to stay there. So what does that look like? Well, I think it looks like providing that strategic thought partnership. It also looks like giving them funding to hold themselves up. So when they tell us what they need and they're like, oh, well, we want to hire new people. We're like, well, you can do that. But are you currently like, are you digitizing your paperwork? Like, have you had an evaluation? Do you have a space where you all can come? Like basic questions that we help them with and we ask them and they give us a response. And so part of our funding is not just funding the evaluation and the research. It's also funding that technical assistance and then also helping to prop up organizations that need to be propped up for them to be able to thrive. So I'm going to ask y'all, <laughs> <laughs> as we're closing out, I would really love um, for both of you, Dr. Ray and Alo, um, to, kind of, to dream with us, to even cast the vision, if you could. Um, if money was not, you know, an object, <laughs> if it was an unlimited, you know, resource, uh, could you cast a vision um, for us, for the audience, for, for our um, community members here today about the vision that you would like to see made manifest um, for the people, for the children and the people on the ground that you are looking to impact or the people you're singing to and for? Um, yeah, just invite us into that dream. I say the dream looks like um, plen plentiful, bountiful, uh, abundance, green spaces, open places, uh, homes that are that are healthy, uh, educational opportunities, meaningful, gainful employment opportunities, um, places where people can feel like they are contributing to their communities and their families. Um, you know, working in in the activism space. You recognize and, and working especially in anti-recidivism and, and criminal justice reform space. Opportunity. You, people just need a chance to be able to feel like I'm somebody and I did something. So if, if you can create those moments, those, those, those jobs, those places, then you transform a person who ends up transforming a generations below at, that come after them. Yeah, great, great response. I mean, I think it goes back to that equitable opportunity to dream. You know, research documents that as youth, particularly black and brown youth in low income communities, that their telomeres, telomeres, telomeres are attached to your cells. And the shorter they are, it means that your length of life is shorter. Research documents that teenagers in these communities have telomere lengths that are the size of elderly men. That's how much stress they've been under. I think what, when I dream, I think about them having the ability to really thrive and not just survive. Those are two very, very different things. And in that thriving, having the ability 
to think about the possibilities of anything they can remotely imagine that they want to be in life with no limitations. And what it means then is doing all the things that Aloe talked about, which is what we're aiming to do with the ARR Equity Initiative, giving people equitable opportunities in education. So realizing that integration is important, it benefits everybody, right? Thinking about workforce opportunities, people having the ability, if they go to college, great. If they don't, still having the ability to get training, get a good job, buy a house, live the American dream, take care of their family, and then be able to live a long life and be healthy. You know, and I'll finally, I'll leave you all with a quote from my grandmother. It's one of my favorite quotes where she says, you know, strive for the stars because when you fall and fail and fail, you will, you'll land on top of the ceiling that you once were in. And I think that's part of what we want to see for our youth is their ability to not look up and say, oh, okay, I can't get out of here because of the limited structural opportunities that they face that are real, where teachers tell them what they can't be where a police officer shows up when they're 10 years old simply because they're the only black kid in the community, but instead not thinking about those things when they go to or from school or when they get there, but having teachers empower them to say you can be everything and anything that you want to be. So in a lot of ways, you both just modeled for us what psychological safety gives to us. It gives us the ability to dream and to envision. And that is my dream and hope for every child in our country is to have the psychological safety facilitated in their schools and in their communities so they can do what kids do best, which is dream and imagine and change the world for us. Thank y'all so much. Thank you, Dr. Ray. Thank you, our Black, for sitting at the table with us. And thank y'all <laughs> for coming and listening. You were very good. Joining. You're a great audience. So <laughs> thank you both very much. Can you give it up for our two guests? Thank you. <laughs> give it up for Truth's Table. Thank you all. Thank you. Our NAACP Image Award-nominated book, Truth's Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation, is making waves and shifting culture. I closed this book feeling like I had just partaken in a multi-course meal, filled with grace and the courage to carry on. And I believe you'll finish this book feeling the same way. Morgan Harper Nichols, artist and poet. Buy Truth's Table, Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation, at our website or wherever books are sold. I'm so glad that we are in my my second home, my city, Nashville today. Hey, hey, hey. Yes, we are. And we are here live at AIR Equity Initiative, Pathways to Peace, Reimagining the Future of Public Safety for Youth and Communities. And I am so excited that we have some experts you know, you know, we love some experts now. We do. <laughs> because we do value we, the expertise. We, we, we believe in leaning into expertise. You people know, that, people that know what they talk about in hello? terms of the thing that they talk about. Exactly. Yes, where, yes. where maybe our knowledge and our expertise, you know, runs out. We just That's the we tap the of community. That's the benefit. <laughs> That's right. Well, I, I'm really excited for our guests that are here at the table. Why don't I tell y'all a little something about them? We have Dr. Melissa Collins. She is an educator from Memphis Shelby County Schools, known for her engaging in innovative STEAM initiatives. And she was named 2002 to 2023, 2022, sorry, to 2023 Tennessee Teacher of the Year. Welcome to the table, Dr. Collins. <laughs> yes. Listen, and, let, and, let, and let me tell you, I think her people in here deep. I just want to be, I want to be clear about that. <laughs> 
And I do believe I do believe showing up with your people. I do. Whatever do you mean? Whatever yeah, yeah. you mean? I, well, well, congratulations and congratulations yes. for that esteemed honor. It's a big deal. Yes, and Dr. Collins is joined by Dr. Terrence McNeil. He is an assistant professor at Tennessee State University and has expertise in culturally responsive school governance, mentoring, and shrinking opportunity gaps through leadership development, including educating and mentoring aspiring principals in Tennessee. He was the inaugural recipient of the Excellence in Innovation and Competitiveness Award from the White House Initiative on Historically Black Colleges and Universities in 2018. Welcome to the table, Dr. McNeil. Thank you. Yes, so, so we when we clap it up for on. Dr. McNeil. And, and here's the thing. Hey. When, when we use the words expert, we were not playing. <laughs> we no, were, not we're not playing. playing. These we, are individuals who have taken seriously the work that they do in, in the classroom and outside the classroom for the benefit uh, for, for children in this country. And yes. so I'm really grateful to be able to, to learn from you all for the short time uh, that we have with you uh, today. Yes. Um, uh, so... Uh, there, there's, there are so many thoughts about education in, in this country, so many thoughts about education in Tennessee. Uh, what, what, I just want to give us a kind of a, an, um, a lead in. What are some misconceptions about education right now in the United States? If you could dispel one of those things, one misconception about education or about teachers, um, if you could get on your soapbox, what would that thing be? I would say that if I can put one thing out there, that all teachers are leaving. All teachers are not leaving. I'm a 25-year veteran. I'm still passionate about the work. I care about how my students learn and what their future is going to look like. So I would say, hey, it is teachers still out here in the game trying to work with students each and every day incredibly important how about you dr McNeil? well i i would i would like to uh first thank you all for being here i certainly appreciate the opportunity and uh the shots out to air and all those who put these um, um opportunities in place for us tonight I, I would say the um misconception that i would kind of blow up is that we can't fix the longitudinal problems that have plagued certain students mm. in in our country we have been looking at these achievement gaps or opportunity gaps and all of that. It's been a problematic issue for us. It's led to all sorts of other problems. But I believe that, as Dr. Collins alluded to, there are great people in, in the business. And I think we can still um, create change. I, I don't think that, that we have to be settled with thinking that um, certain students will always lag behind other students and can't achieve and can't, can't, can't produce. Yeah. So the possibility of change still exists, right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, Dr. McNeil, you mentioned opportunity gaps. Um, and I'm curious, curious about, um, you know, this this commitment. First of all, what is an opportunity gap? You know, for people that may not know <laughs> that are not familiar with that term um, and what can be done on the local um, and maybe even federal uh, political level to close these opportunity gaps? What are they and then what can be done on the local and the federal? Yeah, certainly. So. Uh, often we used to refer to what we call opportunity gaps more commonly as the achievement gap, right? As we looked at, um, you know, the academic um, 
you know, performance levels of students based off of test scores and those types of things, right? So we say, okay, these, these students are achieving less than these other students, right? But what we realized is that some of these things are systemic. Some of these things have a lot to do with uh, student backgrounds and other um, aggregating factors, right? And so we want to take all of that in, in, you know, included in that and also take some onus as professionals and as educators, right, for being able to create the opportunities for students to be able to achieve, right? Mm -hmm. Taking into account what we know of what creates student um, successes and failures, mm -hmm. right? Looking at it in terms of opportunity gaps, put the onus not on the students and what they're able to achieve, but the educators and the other professionals that are, that are putting those things together. You know, and so we, we have more work to do when we look at it in terms of opportunity gaps, as opposed to just saying, hey, these students are are not doing well. So on a on a local level, as far as how we deal with all of that, um, I, I guess I would submit that um, we need to be very intentional, right, about understanding the root causes of some of the academic inequities that we've seen. Right. And, and if we are very intentional about doing that then maybe we'll be pricked to do some work, right? Maybe we'll be pricked to do some intersectional work, right? And work together to be able to, to address all of the issues, not just education issues, but community issues, systemic issues, justice issues, um, healthcare issues, all of the things, all the things, right? And, um, you know, collectively we'll, we'll work together to solve some of those problems, so. Yep. Absolutely. And I want to I want to give you an opportunity, Dr. Collins, also to lift that question up as well, especially from your vantage point as 25 year educational in the classroom veteran. How, how would you approach that question? Uh, just to echo what he was saying, uh, better opportunities lead to better choices. And so we have to offer experiences to students, all students, especially our low income families. Um, and so when I think about it, I think about how we have to work together. And oftentimes, teachers and student voices are not at the tables. And so we have to ask students, what do you need? Why are you committing crimes? And they will tell you if we ask them. And so we have to expose them to things. And if I could talk to school boards and city councils, this is my hope, my dream. If I could have a voice, I would say that we have to in, invest in more after school programs. We have to give our kids something to do. We have to provide mental health resources. And, and I want to add something to what you were saying. Housing security. Uh, we need to make sure that families have homes to live in because it impacts the attendance rate. It is hard to keep up with families. And kids cannot learn when they're not in school. So that's one thing that we need to do. On the political side of things, we need policymakers to advocate for digital equity. And I say this because I'm very passionate about STEAM and AI is happening so quickly. And if we want our black kids, black and brown kids to be successful, we have to make sure that they have those devices. We need policymakers to help with high speed 
internet access. It's always about access and accessibility. So that's my two cents. <laughs> and um, so invite more teachers to the table. We want our voices to be heard. Well, there's definitely a reason, Dr. Collins, why you were teacher of the year. And that That's was right. more than two cents. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Both both of you for for your outstanding wisdom uh, in guiding us in that way. Uh, psychological. And I'm a psychologist by training. So psychological safety is so critical to the to learning. Right. And so if, if, a, if a kid is not fed. How can they have the ability to learn well? And if a kid does not feel safe, whether it's in their neighborhood, their home, or even in the classroom, what can we expect from them? A lot of their, um, a lot of their energy is spent in terms of fight, flight, or freeze, and not in the ability to grasp a new concept. And yet we have on our news very frequently uh, school shootings. And the threat of school shooting, uh, school, school drills. My, my youngest child uh, recently had a school drill and I was more afraid than she was, but I realized that she had become a bit more desensitized uh, to participating in that. And so my question for you really is, is about that. As we think about uh, the need for public safety and cultivating peaceful communities, what do schools need in order to be able to ensure psychological safety for children so they can learn in light of uh, the mass shooting epidemic that we have in the United States? So many things are happening in our country right now. And when you talk about your daughter and you're doing these intruder drills, they can cause anxiety, right? And, and you have to prepare kids to be safe. And we also have to pre prepare ourselves to be safe. But I'm going to say this. If somebody came in the building, and I know other teachers feel this way as I do, our bodies, we're going to put our bodies up first for our students. And that's, that's sad, right? So what we have to do is really implement social-emotional learning to help support and guide our students so they know how to regulate uh, their emotions and putting them in difficult situations where they know how to resolve conflict. And so they can see a better way to make better choices and decisions. Because in Memphis, uh, the crime rate among our youth is high. And what I try to do as a teacher, I try to form partnerships. And I think that's very important to help promote promotes a peaceful community. Uh, for instance, I work with the National Civil Rights Museum um, to, organi to organize the first ever children march where children can see themselves as activists, where their voices uh, can be heard. I believe in their streamlined partnership, uh, K-12, colleges and universities and industry partners. And I have my students, my second grade students 15 years ago, wear white coats. And some people are like, well, all of them are not going to be STEM experts. Well, they're not. But it's hope within their jacket. It's unity within their jacket. And they show that they care for each other purpose, right? And so we need to work with organizations that can help us promote peace within our communities. And we got to take the kids out into the community. Sometimes we don't need to just bring the community into the classroom. 
And we also have to think about not always suspending kids and taking those experiences away from the youth that do have behavior issues. Because if we don't offer them experiences, we don't show them hope, then we don't have a stable or peaceful uh, community. And I, I feel like what schools need to stop doing too is using school counselors for administrative and cafeteria duties. We need to cut that out. They are there for a purpose to work with our kids. They are the experts. But you want teachers to wear all these hats. And then you take away our freedom to teach. So liberate us. And I'm going to stop right there. Well, you can certainly keep going, sister, because <laughs> listen. what I can hear, right? Listen, listen, listen. listen. You, you're putting it down and giving us listen. exactly what we need to hear. From a perspective of yeah. um, an educator, right? Um, you know, I, you know, I'm in higher ed now, and I miss my K-12 days sometimes um, because you you've given us a very authentic glimpse of what has actually happened. I can talk about some of the research, right, and what we've seen and stuff like that, but for you to be boots on the ground, as they say, right, has great value, and so I, I just applaud you for those insightful comments there, and and we'll just offer you know, three, three quick points, right, to just to support. Um, certainly, um, what we know about social emotional learning, um, curriculums in schools, right, have taken off in certain spaces. Um, you know, there are certain merits there. I think we should look more intentionally about where the impact of social emotional learning in certain schools are on student dispositions, on helping to kind of deal with certain things that happen. Um, ACEs, right? Adverse childhood experiences and those types of things should certainly be on the mind of all educators, right? Often we kind of lose that, right? As educators, students come into the building, we forget what might have occurred in these neighborhoods, what might have um, happened to kind of uh, bring them to this point where they walk into the door. And so being cognizant of the fact that our students deal with trauma and are exposed to certain things, frequently and that stuff actually inhibits um, you know learning and those types of things so from an educator standpoint we need to do that and then you, you also kind of spoke about certain things that we're looking at in terms of our research around restorative justice and giving students a voice and so um, who's listening to those voices and how are those voices impacting the policies that take place within the schools so I would think just from a research and operational standard um, things that you're saying kind of meet up with with what we're what we've been studying and what we know, and so um, that's what I'd offer to that question there. Social emotional learning, an emphasis on how to implement more of those programs, how to be able to report the findings of that to influence policymakers to make those changes that are necessary moving forward. Um, being very intentional about learning from um, what students are dealing with in terms of adverse child experiences listening to students and allowing the restorative justice type work to be done so that we can uh, create better pathways for, for our students. Yeah. Thank you for those um, points, especially about ACEs, you know, um, and how that has got to be, you know, factored in to the performance and how that impacts, you know, children's performances, you know, in, in school. Um, you know, I, you know, as you were, talking and, and just thinking about you all, very wise and insightful, 
you know, solutions and approaches, you know, to teaching, whether in the higher education space or K to 12, you know, space. Um, you know, it made me think back to my own times back in the day when I was young. I'm not a kid anymore, but some days I sit and wish I was a kid again. Hey, and when I think back, <laughs> when I think back, uh, honestly, I do not remember. Um, I remember after school specials. Shout out to after school specials. Those were very helpful. <laughs> Taught baby. us moralistic lessons, but they were helpful. We need to bring those back. Okay. <laughs> That's just my non-educator opinion. Um, but I remember being in school and there was no such thing as a school resource officer when I was in school. Uh, so I'm telling you something about my age. Um, so, but I'm curious from your vantage point and on the heels of our conversation earlier, you know, about, you know, policing and in the community, and, you know, um, and um, healthier approaches, you know, to policing. I'm curious about if the presence of school resource officers um, helps to promote safety or does it heighten risk of harm for students in schools? Just curious about your own experience from your vantage point as educators. Yeah, well, I'll start. Um, you know, so it's understandable, right, how we kind of arrived at this space where uh, some educators and policymakers believe that school resource officers should be in schools, right? We, we, we understand that, uh, given... Uh, the tremendous challenge of keeping our students safe, the incidences that have created or prompted the need for, uh, you know, greater enforcement and those types of things, right? It, I get it, okay? And in oft oftentimes there is a positive impact of school resource officers, right? Um, yes, and there's also, um, you know, kind of a detrimental side of that when we recognize that we live in a society and a culture that often indulges in, uh, you know, differential perspectives towards certain students, right? Uh, implicit bias, if you will, right? Um, um, all those things, right? We can go further down into outright uh, you know, discrimination, racism, and all those types of things. And so, unfortunately, that has kind of seeped into our, our culture in certain schools, I believe. And, you know, research suggests that that's all largely due to what's called the sociocultural gap, which is the distance or the connect, disconnect between, um, you know, the, the, the cultural, societal background of the educators um, and the the school resource officers from the students in which they're working with, right? So the social cultural gap is a real thing. It exists. Uh, when we understand that 80% of uh, the teachers in school are predominantly white and female, right? And that um, our nation is increasingly becoming more of a minority majority population within the schools. You know, we, we see that there's the possibility for a disconnect. Right. Not that there actually is in every case. I don't subscribe to that, but enough to understand that there might be um, differences in how we perceive certain students. And that might lead to the disproportionate discipline we're seeing. And similarly, in the law enforcement community, there's the same type of thing. And so that kind of leads to some of these clashes that we're seeing. Right. And um, some of the statistics that were brought out at the earlier symposium about how 
uh, much more policed certain students are. And so that's when it becomes very problematic. And so I kind of see, you know, both of those, the, 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 the reason why we have it, maybe some of the efficacy in school resource officers and some of the problems we suggested there's a lot of work to do maybe regarding, you know, training and professional development of school resource officers, maybe bridging communication gaps between SROs and um, teachers and school parents and all of this stuff um, to further understand just how we are exasperating, exacerbating the school to prison pipeline that we're seeing based off of what's happening in our schools with these SROs. Dr. Collins, I'd love for you to pick that up that question up, but I also have a, a kind of a bit of a final thought because I, I know that we are nearly at our time. And the people have been patient because it's late, late in the hour. <laughs> late in the hour. And and so if you would indulge me, I I um I I am the daughter of a Baltimore City public school educator, retired. Um Education is just a really big, big deal uh, in the context of my family. And also a graduate of TSU, so shout out and give TSU they $2.1 billion. Give them their money. I need to say that on mic um, now, today. But, um, but, but I just know how important teachers are in, in shaping, shaping my world and shaping the world of a lot of kids like me who grew up in Baltimore. So I, if you could make a pitch as you listen to our audience, and uh, they, they range in background, but they even range in age, and for people who are contemplating careers and ways to make a difference, particularly our audience, which, which tends to be overwhelming folks who are kind of uh, led and have deep convictions around their faith and want to have a purposeful and meaningful life, could you make the case for why education, even in the midst of all the complexities that we talked about, why teaching is still one of the most noble professions and why they should join along with you with that 25 years of, of reputation and history and become a teacher today. Thank you. And that's a very important question. And a lot of my teaching teacher friends, we have often have, we often have conversations about how we can get people to come to the profession but at the same time, stay. And I, and if I can indulge you in thinking about faith, uh, mm -hmm. I'm gonna tell you a true story. And I'm hoping I'm not gonna get emotional. Mm -hmm. uh, okay, so, <laughs> my dad, he has these two plants that he will not let go because he had them from my mother funeral that died two years ago. And often I tell my father that those plants are no good. They're not beautiful. You need to get rid of those plants. And then he'll pick up his water bottle and he'll go water the plants. And he'll talk to the plants and he'll tell me that I can bring them back to life. And and I think about that with the teaching profession. We have to keep believing. We have to keep having hope that if we stay, if we give all our children what they need, despite of what people say, that we can move this country forward through educators. And so I want you to join me 
join us in this fight because it's a political war and I don't want to be in it. Thank you. Beautiful. Can these dry bones live again? And the dry bones are not our babies. It's <laughs> right. not the students. Yeah, yeah. It is the opposition. It is the oppressive systems that keep the resources out of the out of the schools that makes it harder for educators like yourself and Dr. McNeil to do the job that you were purposed and called to do. So I want to thank you, Dr. McNeil and Dr. Collins, for sitting at the table with us. Can y'all please give them a round give of applause? <laughs> and we want to thank y'all for taking a seat at the table with us. So <laughs> thank you so much for being at the table with us this evening. Thank you for your service. Thank y'all. Mm -hmm. Thank you. All right. <laughs>